Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Dixon Buchanan. I am the VP of Marketing at Monetary Metals, and I am here today with Ben Nadelstein, uh, who also works with me in marketing. And of course, we're here with Keith Wiener, the CEO, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. And uh, this is a special episode. It's 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 a first for the company. Uh, it's the first of uh, what we hope to turn into a series, which is called the AKA, Ask Keith Anything. And uh, as as many of you know, we reached out to you uh, on social media, through a newsletter, through our through our newsletter, uh, and other avenues, with a call for questions to Keith. You know, what questions do you want to ask Keith? Anything is fair game. Um, and needless to say, we got an amazing response. We are uh, overwhelmed with questions. So I'm very excited about uh, this episode. It's also a first uh, because it's the first video episode that we've done for the podcast. And basically th- the only reason for that is so that we can record Keith's response to some of these questions. So I personally just want to see how how Keith responds to some of the questions that we're gonna we're gonna ask him today. So should be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we've got we've got lots of questions covering a lot of different topics. We've got questions on inflation, the US, uh, global macro, gold, questions about monetary metals, money, credit, you name it. And of course, there's plenty of uh, Lord of the Rings questions as well. We'll get to those. There's also some some other random fun ones. Um, Keith has not seen these questions. So we've, Ben and I have, have kept these, we've kept these questions secret. We've kept them safe. And that will not be the last Lord of the Rings reference you hear uh, on this episode. So this is all brand new for Keith. He hasn't seen any of these. This is all real time. So it should be a lot of fun. Before we begin, I just wanna, I just wanna shout out to the Monetary Metals community. Um, this is an idea that Ben and I have had for a while. Uh, we finally were able to do it. And uh, again, just an incredible response. We got, we got you know, questions from all over the place, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, got questions in reply to email. Um, so. We were really pleased with with the engagement. So special shout out to the monetary metals community for that. And also, I want to I want to give special thanks to to two super, you know, super uh, uh, members of the community, Austin Jones and Darno Conrad. I'm not probably not pronouncing that name right, but um, you guys you guys achieved gold status with not only the number of questions that you submitted, but also the quality of questions. So special shout out to y'all. Um, all right, before we begin, just a, just, a, just a quick word. There is a lot of questions that we have here, a lot of questions to get through. So I'm gonna ask Keith to be precise and concise. I know uh, Keith, you're very capable of that, but I just want to I just want to prep you before we get started. Um, all right. Any any words, Ben, Keith, before we're ready to go? I think it was Mark Twain that his editor said, "How long would it take to write uh, an essay of 2,000 words?" And he said, "A week." And then the editor came back and said, "How long would it take to write an essay of 1,000 words?" And he said, "A month." So sometimes concision takes a longer time. Well. I would say if if there are questions that where we need more time, where we need more airtime, we need to answer in other format, uh, that's that's perfectly fine. But um, regardless, we are about we are about to embark. So so here we go. All right, we're going to start the questions uh, around some of the current events that we've seen. So um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some of the financial sanctions that were imposed on Russia, and the implications from that. Um, so starting there, here is question number one, and this comes to us from Twitter, I believe the enlightened examiner on Twitter. 
What do you think about the freezing of assets of Russians? Is this a just move or a dangerous precedent? I think I should probably confine my remarks to kind of the economic aspect of it and stay in my swim lane when it comes to you know, not only analyzing the geopolitics, but then opining as to um, you know, what I think may be right or wrong, good or bad. Um, so let me let me uh, just leave it at that. Okay. And you've you've written a few articles on the implications of of the invasion, at least as it relates to precious metals, the impact it's had on 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 gold and silver. So we can we can link to that in the show notes. Um, I have a feeling that the show notes for this episode is going to be a, a literal gold mine of information because uh, I think there's there's a lot of um, a lot of these questions you've you've covered in in previous material. All right, Keith, freezing Russia's reserves has highlighted the need for central banks to hold gold, China more than any other country. Do you think this is enough of a factor? to adjust your gold forecast for this year? That question comes from Donald Woods from Twitter. What do you think? Does that adjust my gold forecast? So my gold forecast for this year was that the gold price would be up, you know, 10 to 15%. Um, obviously, I made that forecast before Ukraine, before the, the freezing of Russian assets, but certainly the discussion of China and its gold reserves is, is not a new uh, topic. Um, so I, I would say I'll, I'll stand pat on the prediction. Um, and I also said that the case would be more bullish if the Fed were to, um, you know, reverse, reverse course and come back with its tail between its legs and said, yeah, we can't really hike. I will note that um, that may be close to happening. We'll see. Um, I'm saying this on March 30 before this decision has been announced, but the yield curve has inverted. And uh, we'll see if the Fed just wants to keep hiking into an inverted yield curve. Um, and if they don't continue hiking, then I think that will be more bullish as a lot of people would say, well, okay, then, then it's time to it's time to get serious about precious metals. But in the meantime, what I would say is, yeah, obviously a lot of central banks are looking at buying gold. But I wrote something after the Irish Central Bank bought gold. I think that was November, December. I don't remember when that was. Right. Yep. And I said, beware the fallacy of the famous buyer. You know, 10,000 people sold gold. We don't talk about them. One famous party, the Irish Central Bank, bought gold. We talk about them exclusively, but there's two sides to the trade. Why do we know that the one side is automatically right and the other is automatically wrong? And that's because we're goal seeking. We're just looking for um, whatever stories can support higher gold price, and and ignoring any any uh, and spinning to, to find a higher gold price and ignoring any stories that don't necessarily lead to a higher gold price. That's great. I feel like I feel like one of the like foundational axioms of finance should be for every buyer there's a seller, and the seller has his own reasons for why he's selling. I, I think. I think it was Warren Buffett who said, I was, I mean, this probably goes way back before Warren Buffett, but um, you should try and understand, you know, for any investment that you're considering, you should try and understand, you know, why is the seller selling? Um, but as you said, when in the, in the, um, at least in the precious metal space, though I imagine it happens in other, in other spaces too, there's a lot of hype about who's buying and how important of a buyer they are. And there's almost no talk about, the sellers on the other on the other side of that trade right and, and it, it should be added the thing that makes the gold market the gold market gold is people would use the word liquidity menger would use the word marketability which is a slightly different concept gold is not only the most marketable commodity it is the most marketable commodity by far and a very very big and deep and liquid market there's millions of people transacting in the gold market every day probably tens of millions hundreds of millions i don't know it's a huge market a lot of transactions and um, everybody's transacting for reasons of their own and not necessarily a directional bet on price. Right. It could be that some family in India is selling a little bit of gold because the cost of food has gone up. It could be that somebody's buying a bit of gold 
as a um, rebalance of the portfolio or because his wife has been nagging him or you know who knows what. I mean, and not all of these things have any predictive uh, you know, power for what the price of gold will do next. Right. They also don't make good headlines either, you know. Company sells gold because they need to raise cash or, you know, for whatever right. reason. <laughs> I just spoke to somebody in Austria who is, um, his, his company's involved in selling gold throughout Central Europe, including in Hungary. And right now there are big lines um, in Budapest to, uh, to buy gold. Mm. What are the reasons? Well, inflation, because the Hungarian foreign is, is falling. Obviously, nervousness about Ukraine. Um, Hungary is a neighboring country. Um, and they have an election coming up. How many people in America knew that Hungary had an election coming up? A lot of people are buying gold ahead of that election because they think that in that election, uh, Viktor Orban, who's been in power for a long time, may lose, and that the opposition party, who's going to be more pro-Euro you know, Euro and pro-globalist agenda, might win, and that might be some changes in policies. I mean, is that a thing in America, to think about Hungarian elections' effect on the price of gold? I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't heard of it. I haven't seen it on Twitter until um, a friend of mine who's involved in that business uh, told me on, on a call this morning. So uh, so there you have it. Awesome. All right, moving on to the next question here. Um, related, this is coming from Kale on YouTube. What are the implications of the fundamental gold price for that's monetary metals, fundamental gold price for um, Russia and Iran hoarding unprecedented levels of physical gold while also removing taxes on gold. Well, the taxation thing is easy. It makes gold, it removes friction, right? So if, if you're sitting on uh, some gold that you bought a long time ago when the price was lower and there's a tax, it may make you more reluctant to, to to sell because then you have this loss. So you might just say, well, I'll just keep it. You remove the tax, it, it frees you up to sell. But at the same time, there might be another person who says, I don't want to buy gold because if it goes up, I'm just going to have to pay a tax. And then therefore, it, it the tax tilts the equation. It takes away some of the expected upside. The downside is all yours, but you have to share the upside 50-50 with the government. It's a less attractive <laughs> bet. So you get less liquidity, you get less transactions, the tax is just a friction. Taking away friction doesn't tell you what direction the vehicle wants to drive. It just says that the vehicle will be able to drive there more freely. Mm. Uh, what was the other half of the question? I think, I think you, oh, what are the implications for the monetary metals fundamental price, if there are any, uh, based on what Russia and Iran are doing? Um, so it needs to be said, there's an awful, awful, awful lot of gold in the world. There's even more than that. Um, <laughs> you know, the, 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 official, the official estimate from the World Gold Council, who, by the way, has done some great work in tallying this all up because they talked to all the central banks, they talked to all the bullion banks, they talked to all the Brinks and everybody else. Um, they talked to the mining companies and they've tallied up some 200,000 roughly tons of gold out there. Um, a friend of mine by the name of Philip Barton wrote a book called The Dawn of Gold, in which he argued. So, and we all know that gold has been with us for perhaps 5,000 years, something like that, since at least the beginning of, um, you know, recorded history or even recorded pseudo history before the Greeks. He argues in his book that the Neanderthals were picking up gold nuggets out of the stream beds in Europe 13,000 years ago. Mm. Um, there's no way to know he did some anthropological research, and that's what he came up with, and I, I think his thesis is at least plausible. Um, so all that gold is still, virtually all of that gold is still in human hands somewhere. Gold doesn't go away, it doesn't go out of existence, it doesn't oxidize away, uh, it doesn't rot, you know, and it's not really for consumer purposes. Um, so, you know, if there's an increase in hoarding by Russia and Iran of a few hundred tons, or maybe a thousand or two thousand tons, doesn't really change the equation very much. Um, you know, if there were to be a significant net increase in the desire to hoard, then what we would see is a drop in the basis, as a uh, a boost in the buying not of paper 
you know, gold, so-called paper gold, gold futures, but in buying of metal. So the price of metal relative to futures would rise. That is uh, measured by us as a fall in the basis. And therefore, um, our, our uh, calculated fundamental price, which is based on the basis plus a few other uh, things, uh, the fundamental price would go up. Um, that's what we would. Uh, that's what we would see. All right, Keith. Next question: Gold has been replaced twice in American history: once by FDR on purpose, and once by Nixon on accident when he closed the gold window. Can Russia or China reprice gold? That's from Darno Conrad from YouTube. Well, I'm not sure I agree that Nixon did what he did by accident. <laughs> I think that was with full, what is the expression, with full malice aforethought. Um, on, on the advice of the alleged free marketer Milton Friedman, who was whispering in his ear as early as, I think, 1969, uh, basically saying default. So the leading Keynesian at the time, um, Samuelson, had penned a uh, an article for the... Um, was at the uh, the Washington Post saying, you know, Nixon devalues the dollar against gold, because that's what even even the Keynesians wouldn't go any farther than that. It's up to the alleged free marketer to say, just default entirely. Wash your hands of it. Uh, so I don't think that was an accident. But um, leaving that aside, can they reprice gold? No, because they don't price it in the first place. Um, as we just said. You know, virtually all of the gold mined in either 5,000 years of human history or 13,000 years of combined Homo sapiens and Neanderthal history, all that gold is still around. Um, seven and a half billion people on the planet represent potential demand for gold. Um, 5,000 or 13,000 years worth of gold production represents the potential supply of gold, all under the right conditions and at the right price, of course. Um, you know, I have some gold that's not for sale anywhere near the current price. Um, I'm sure most people watching this would, would be able to say that. Um, I'm sure people watching this would say they have a bid for gold, uh, maybe perhaps relatively near the current price. If it were to drop 50 bucks, I bet some viewers of the show would be out there buying. I bet if the price went up 50 or 100 bucks, some of the viewers might be sellers. Um, so, you know, you have a market with at least in theory, seven and a half billion participants. Um, you know, uh, does does a uh, a country, let alone a marginalized one. So Iran being complete pariah to the rest rest of the world, um, and uh, Russia being partial pariah. I'm not exactly sure how to, you know, on, on a scale of one to eleven, where one is they're not a pariah, and eleven is their full spinal tap turn it up to 11 because 11 is louder. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly where you could put Russia on that scale. Do either of those people have the have the power to somehow do something that forces the price to go up? Uh, you know, I've seen one theory that's circulating around on Twitter that I, sh I shouldn't call it a theory. I guess I should call it fantastical notion. One fantastical notion that Russia could set its price of oil at one one thousandth of a barrel. Um, I'm sorry, one one thousandth of an ounce per barrel, excuse me. I didn't state that right the first time. Um, and so uh, if you get a thousand barrels for, um, you know, 1900 and something dollars, then that means that uh, the price of a barrel is a dollar ninety something. And that according to this fantastical notion masquerading as the theory, then this will pull the price of gold up to $100,000 or something, something like that. No, what it's going, what happens when you, this is like, not even economics one. This is like home economics for you know fourth or fifth graders 101. Um, when you sell something below uh, market price and below cost, you don't change the world. What you do is you change your own balance sheet to a technical state called bankrupt. Um, <laughs> that's the technical kind of term. Like, that's the technical term. That's right. <laughs> it's kind of like if you go up to um, you know I don't know a very large building and you tie a rope to it and you pull on the building. To think that you're going to pull the Earth out of its orbit is just a little bit, a little bit much. Mm. Um, at most, you're going to either make your hands sore and get some rope burn, or pull yourself into the building. Um, but you're not going to, you know, pull the building off of its foundations, much less, um, you know, pull the Earth out of its orbit. 
Um, so no, I don't think they have any power to do any such thing. Um, again, I think people are, are, are goal seeking a, a story that leads to gold at $100,000, which means we all get rich, you know, hooray at the end. Um, and, you know, there's not a plausible mechanism there for that. Just just as a follow up to that, I'm curious, like what what do you think? Do you have any inkling as to the amounts, like what amount would be required to really move the price in a sustainable way? I mean, obviously we, you can look at average daily volume and, and and what makes the market move on a daily basis, but the question seems to be asking, you know, for gold to quote unquote reprice, we assume higher, significantly higher. You know, how much at what amount of buying do you like where if you had to throw a dart at the board, where would you put that? That's a good question. Um you know the gold miners are producing, you know, what, twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred tons a year. So the very least you better be prepared to absorb <laughs> that. <laughs> But like that's, that's like, yeah. you know, you want to sit down and win the World Series of Poker. Okay, that 3,500 tons, that's one white chip. Right. Um, how much does it take to to win? You know, to, to have a credible shot at winning, a lot more than one white chip. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, you know, I, I could sort of think in my mind how one might kind of construct an economics experiment to try to figure it out. But these things are all very nonlinear, right? So you could look at, how much, um, you know, let's say the price of gold goes up $50, you know, across the span of a week. You could look at how much of that gold was was um, buyers not holding to their bid, but hitting offers of sellers. Mm. And you could watch, and we have the data to watch tick by tick and see whether each tick is somebody, somebody taking an offer to buy or whether it's a seller taking a bid to sell. And then try to add up cumulatively you know, the volume behind all those ticks. Um, but it gets very nonlinear, right? If the price keeps going up, there are more and more sellers that come out. Uh, so, so silver, which is a less liquid market, where it's not true that virtually all the silver ever mined is in human hands, a great deal of it has been wasted or lost. Um, you know, every washing machine that's thrown into the garbage has a little bit of silver solder in it or silver in one of the relays or, you know, things like that. All that stuff is rotting and tarnishing in landfills all over the world. Um, and yet every time that some billionaire thinks he's going to corner the silver market, so the Hunt brothers at 19, was it 1979, 1980, uh, Warren Buffett in the late 90s, you know, 20 years later, they get disabused of that notion because there's a hell of a lot more silver out there than they expected there was. Right. And then that silver just starts coming to market in a very nonlinear deluge. Right. right? So you bid the price of silver up a dollar. You know, yeah, you get more silver, but okay, you're a billionaire, fine. You just absorb it all. But the more you keep pushing it up, you get exponentially increase, exponential increases in that flood of silver coming. And then eventually you run out of capital long before the world runs out of silver to dump. Um, I, I feel like the short answer is, the short answer to that question is a whole lot more than most people think. That's right. right. And, and more, <laughs> more even than that. That's yeah, right. and more even than that, right. All right. Um, Moving to our next question. So we're moving uh, from Russia with love to the US. Again, in, in a similar vein here. So this, this one's a, a little long. Um, all right, here we go. This came in uh, via email. I have a very important subject for Keith to address. Let me begin by saying I'm very happy with my investments with you, but because of the shenanigans going on in the government and financial system, I am becoming very concerned about the investments I have in the United States. I have been told that most central banks are working on some form of central bank digital currency. They plan to replace the dollar with this per the World Economic Forum and give the central bank complete control over every financial transaction. Question, does this pose any danger for us? How would this affect people who get Social Security from the government, and uh, if if Keith has already addressed this in an article, uh, please point me to those articles. So the first thing I would say, you know, they're replacing the dollar. Suppose 
you have a $400,000 mortgage on your house. You have $50,000 in credit card debt, another $100,000 in other miscellaneous debt, student debt and whatever. How did you decide to replace that debt? What does replace in the concept of, I have a lot of debt, what does the concept of replace mean in that context? Um, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure on what that means and I would have to hear somebody answer that to go further and kind of debunk that idea. The dollar is something everybody loves to, ha to hate. Um, you know, libertarian, alternative finance, gold circles, which obviously there's a lot of overlap, you know, in America and in the West, we love to hate the dollar for, you know, a lot of good reasons. I'm not, I'm not in any way a defender of the dollar. Um, when you fly and travel around the rest of the world, as I have, you see there's a lot of hate for the dollar because the dollar is screwing them mm. uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, when you look around the rest of the world, you know, things are a heck of a lot less wealthy than than they appear to be here. Some of that is, yes, we've had freer markets and therefore higher productivity and therefore, excuse me, we are wealthier. But a lot of it is the uh, flow of capital from the rest of the world to the U.S. Uh, via the dollar hegemony mechanism. So there's certainly no lack of people that hate the dollar, both domestically and abroad. However, you know, there's kind of a, a, a game theory uh, stable equilibrium that maybe nobody's happy with where we're at, but nobody's really in a position to change it. And there's a very, 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 very powerful network effect that uh, you know keeps everything locked in. Plus, you have a couple of other interesting things. One is, I like to say often, all the other currencies are dollar derivatives. So what that means is all those other central banks hold dollars, or if they hold other currencies such as euros, where the European Central Bank holds dollars. So they're getting dollar exposure in multiple ways. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the dollar is on both sides of every major balance sheet globally, both on the asset side and the liability side. Um, how do you replace that? Well, it's kind of like, how do you replace the internet? What if we came along and said that um, Novell Netware or IBM um, NetBIOS was a better protocol than internet protocol? We're just going to go what knocking door to door and just say, you know, sir, can I tell you about a better internet that you should <laughs> buy, some, buy some new equipment and change everything over and learn some new software and like, you know, it's a tall, some, tall order. Yeah, I mean, it's intractable. So um, as far as replacing the dollar, you know, not so much. Um, I've written about, um, I think the article was called The Fed Coin is Coming. Was that the title? Yes, yeah, two-part um, article. The Fed coin is coming, but there's also one you wrote on the the Fed's actual paper on central bank digital currency. That's right. I did kind of a, a takedown of uh, of the Fed's thing, which you know, I, I, surprise, surprise, I showed that they were being disingenuous and some of the some of the things they were asserting, and hmm. and doing some of the Jedi mind trick. Oh, you don't need to worry about privacy because you know we'll be all private and secure, and. Uh, you know, anyway, leaving leaving all that stuff aside, obviously, yes, the government is going to, with one of these central bank digital currencies, they're going to get more ability to monitor what you're doing for tax purposes. They're going to have more ability to monitor what you're doing for political purposes. They will have the means with which to impose a um, social credit score and then say, oh, well, you know, you can't buy that gasoline because you've been too vocally uh, against um whatever the latest woke politically correct, you know, thing of uh, the jour, so we're not going to let you buy that gas, you know, too bad. You can, your car can just die on the side of the road because we don't like you today. Um, you know, sure, all, all of that's true. But at the end of the day, um, if the Fed issues the Fed coin, it's just a dollar in a different form. Um, it's not a replacement for the dollar. It's a different way of having the dollar. And I've written that there's two reasons why that they will um, be forced to move to this Fed coin, both of them having to do with the monetary system. I mean, I'm sure they love the tax implication, tax enforcement implications. I'm sure they love the um, social control implications, but there were two monetary factors that force it. One is as the interest rate continues to fall, now that might sound like a really weird thing to say with everybody predicting the interest rate now entering a new rise in trend, such as we had from World War II to 1981, but as the interest rate continues to fall, um, it continues to be my position that we remain in a falling trend. And this is one of the zags along the way. 
anybody should look at a chart of the interest rate post 1981. Um, and eventually you get below zero. And when you get somewhere, maybe not at minus 0.01% or 0.1% or 0.2%, but there's a, a line at which you start to get withdrawals for paper cash, which is a run on the banks, such as we haven't seen since the early 1930s. And to prevent the run on the banks, they will have to say, we're taking away the cash and we're now we're going to have everybody has a Fed coin account in lieu of cash. And of course, the Fed coin account, unlike paper dollar bill, is subject to negative interest rates. If they want to have minus 50 basis points or half of 1% on bank accounts, they'll have minus 50 basis points on Fed coin as well. There will be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that in a irredeemable or an irredeemable currency system, there has to be constant exponential growth in credit. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then you have calamity. So what the Fed has done in the past is either, excuse me, push down the interest rate a tick and or, uh, you know, tinker with the rules by which they regulate the banks. Uh, so they re reduce the reserve requirements or something like that. Well, um, in the wake of COVID, they reduced the reserve requirements to zero. And it didn't unleash the torrent of bank lending that uh, they probably wished for and that the global community um, you know, promptly predicted would lead to hyperinflation. It didn't happen. So the banks are absolutely not reserve constrained. There is no reserve requirement. And, and yet you don't see the, the flood of bank lending. So they're going to have to... Um, they can't work through the commercial banks to get the credit expansion that they that the system needs anymore, so they'll move to a Fed coin. Now, what does that do about you know for gold or to gold or what kind of threat is that? In 1933, everyone knows that um, Roosevelt wrote an executive order that confiscated all gold and did a bunch of other things. Um, that confiscation wasn't because he wanted to loot the American people. Although no doubt that that delighted him because he was that kind of guy, um, but uh, I, that wasn't the driver of it. The driver of it was monetary. That there were these runs on the banks. People were going to the banks and demanding their gold. In those days, it wasn't a price of gold; it was a redemption, you know, value. Um, so people deposit an ounce of gold, get a twenty-dollar bill. At some point, they come back with a twenty-dollar bill and say, "Give me that ounce of gold back." And as the interest rate would be pushed below what they would want, and as the soundness of the banking system was, was sinking, more and more people were demanding their gold. This was causing a problem. One, it was causing bankruptcies of banks. Two, it was causing um, the banks have to sell a bond to meet redemptions, which was pushing bond prices down, which is the same thing as pushing interest rates up. FDR wanted interest rates down. So, um, they, uh, what it did was he altered the monetary system and went from a, you know, a gold standard with a, with a, a gold coin standard that the currency was redeemable to an irredeemable system. At least to American citizens, it was still redeemable to foreign governments and foreign central banks for another, uh, you know, 30 some odd years. But, um, so there's no reason for them. And then after Nixon, um, ended redeemability, there was no reason that they had to care about gold anymore. So Congress re-legalized gold in 1975. Subsequent to that, they re-enabled gold clauses in, you know, loans and leases and um, employment agreements, whatever. But by that point, gold was, you know, exiled from the monetary system and gold was no longer a thing. They have no reason to mess with gold today. Because they've um, got other avenues if they want. No, I mean, because they... they have control over the monetary system. Right, right. And if you buy gold, it doesn't change their control of the monetary system. If you buy gold, yeah, you're personally getting out of the loop. But the person who sold you the gold is getting himself into the loop and taking your place. Right. So the dollars are all trapped in the system. And then, you know, what name is on the record in the banking system of those dollars? Uh, they don't particularly care. And anyways, you have to sell the gold to do anything with it anyways. They know they'll get you for capital gains tax. It doesn't matter to them anymore. And, you know, Nobody can predict what the government might do in the future, uh, of course, but there's no, the reasons why they did it in 1933 are inapplicable today, I guess is what I would say. Right. And there's, there's, there's a few more questions that dance around that same topic. Um, I actually, actually want to 
so so I first that was a that was a very thorough answer to that question. <laughs> and I just want to I just want to summarize what I think might might be the essence. So when it comes to central bank digital currencies, if I'm, I'm if I'm trying to recapitulate what you said, it's basically it's all the same it's all the badness of the dollar as it exists today plus more plus more of it. There's more control, there's greater control, there's greater visibility, there's greater power really for um you know sauron to, to to see into you know and to and to do damage to uh you know the hobbits of the shire if he wants to so i mean would that be a fair uh summary of 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 your position yeah, it's, it's it's exposing all the hobbits to the eye apparently right. really see all their little transactions <laughs> really it's it's really it's cutting the banks out Okay. Right, so everybody today, if you want to hold a dollar balance, I mean, if you want to have a hundred dollars, you put it in your pocket. If you want to have a yeah. hundred thousand dollars, you put it in the bank. Well, now they're going to cut the banks out. Um, I remember in your article, you hinted at that possibility. Your article on the CBDC that if 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 the bank was reading that, they might get a little nervous because that's you know, right. <laughs> what's their business model after that? Um, by the way, we'll link we'll link to that article, and we'll also link to the FedCoin, uh, the 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 two part series on FedCoin in the show notes. So all of those resources will be available. Um, okay, you said something you said something early in that answer, which actually is almost verbatim another question. So Ben, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit if that's okay. So you were talking about the dollar system, and you said you were talking about how. Um, the dollar is an asset and a liability on almost everyone's balance sheet. And that other currencies, we really shouldn't think of them as kind of their own independent currencies that exist, you know, outside of the dollar system. But in reality, they are dollar derivatives. So with that in mind, I'm going to read you this question. This is coming from uh, Michael on Facebook. Could you elaborate, please, about the thesis that non-USD currencies are derivatives of the USD? How exactly does that work? And what are the implications for currency intervention, exchange rates, interest rates, and the economic policies of those countries? In particular, you have said that a USD is held uh, in the balance sheet as an asset. What is meant by this? Uh, because I never hear anyone else talk about it. So a central bank is a bank. I mean, it has some unique legal um, uh, you know, statutory uh, privileges, um, and it's part of the government. But, you know, at the end of the day, a bank is raising capital, but and which is synonymous with issuing its liabilities, um, which is a borrowing function. So it's very counterintuitive to think the dollar that you hold in your pocket, which you think of as money, is actually the Fed borrowing off of you. Mm. Very counterintuitive, but that's exactly what it is. And you get that really by by focusing on the balance sheet. That's where you see right, the asset. Historically, yeah. right, I wrote an article, I don't remember the title of it, that basically said, let's take a look at all these adulterations to you know the dollar going from a um, gold redeemable promise to pay and saying, look, that's definitely not money. It was a promise to pay money. Mm -hmm. And as you adulterate it, you make it worse. There's no point in make. there's no degree of worseness that converts a a credit into money itself it's the liability so it's not just a rationalistic oh well by definition a liability on a balance sheet is whatever it's tracing the history and origin of it it's looking at the balance sheet it's looking at the meaning of it a bank raises capital in order to deploy that capital i.e lend so it borrows with one hand uh, and lends with the other to make excuse me an interest rate spread between the two, hopefully a positive spread. Now, central banks are highly politicized, so they may have a greater degree, greater degree of either tolerance or a tolerance of either risk or negative spread, at least for a time. But that's what, you know, they're raising capital at a certain cost um, to invest it in assets at different costs. The central banks of the rest of the world, so the Fed doesn't own euros, much less yuan. The Fed owns, you know, dollar-denominated assets. The central banks of the rest of the world own, you know, U.S. Treasury bonds, 
So there's there's quite a difference between the European Central Bank, um, the People's Bank of China, any of them versus the Fed. The Fed doesn't own their government debts. <laughs> they own U.S. government debts. Big asymmetry there. And so because they own U.S. government debts, and you could point to the percentage and say it's higher or lower now versus five years ago or whatever, um, but you know the U.S. government debt is the core of their balance sheet. Mm. Not the margin, it's the core. And so that makes them, um, you know, USD derivatives. But not only that, um, but all of the commercial banks and all those other countries and all the major corporations in all those other countries both owe dollar, you know, dollar denominations on their borrowings um, and have dollar, you know, cash and treasury bonds and other other things like that on the asset side. Um, and there's no other country that really, you know, works like that. Yeah, the euro was number two. But I, w- I was like to, you know, use the example, you know, who was the first person to fly across the Atlantic solo in an airplane? Charles Lindbergh. Who was number two? Who was the first guy to land, you know, to walk on the moon and get out of a, a rocket and land on the moon? Neil Armstrong. Who was number two? You know, so yeah, there is a number two. Number two is a very, very distant second, not even close, not a photo finish. The euro is number two. It's not close to the dollar. It is distant. Right. Um, and then the other currencies are distant, you know, to the euro. Uh, you know, anyways, um, anyways, I don't know if did I just answer one part of the question. Or was I, that I think that's good. I mean, again, just to try and summarize it as as I understand it, it really gets down to what do what do what do central banks what do the central banks of the world hold on the asset side of their balance sheet? And the resounding answer to that is treasuries, U.S. treasuries. Is that, is that fair? And that's right. the and, and other I mean treasuries, of course, and then other U.S. dollar denominated assets. Right. Yeah, right. like corporates, all kinds of other things. Right. As do the commercial banks in these countries, which also constitute part of their monetary systems, right. and the major corporations to whom those commercial banks lend their dollars have dollar denominated assets, including treasuries. So the treasury isn't just at the central bank, the treasury percolates all the way down to the major corporations and probably even the businesses that aren't major corporations. Right. It permeates everywhere. And we're just going to, you know, replace it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So, and what it, and what the implication is, if I'm a holder of euros or something else, what is the asset that stands behind that euro? Well, it's it's actually a U.S. dollar denominated asset, and that's that's where you get the the phrase or the idea. You know, all these other currencies are really dollar derivatives at the end of the day. That's right. I, th- I, I think that's good for that. Um, so yeah, back to you, Ben. We can we can pick up. Keith, we are gonna get to the hottest topic of the year: inflation. Your favorite. Let's start off with this. What is your definition of inflation, and how does it differ from everyone else's? So um, there's that famous quote from Milton Friedman, where he says, "Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon." Now, in the context of that quote. He means rising prices are a monetary phenomenon, and he uses the word inflation to refer to that. Um, and yet, he more than anybody would say, no, 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 inflation is actually the increase in the quantity of what he called money, uh, and um, rising prices as the always and everywhere consequence of the increase in the quantity of money. So, so there's that quibble, that distinction that they make between the increase in quantity and increase in prices. But since the increase in prices is always and everywhere, uh, he doesn't quite say a linear uh, response. He does say leads and lags in other, in other quotes. But since one is cause and what the other is effect, most people uh, uh, kind of use them interchangeably. Um, and my definition is quite different. I define, because I say there are lots of different causes for um, rising prices, and some of them are non-monetary. And I've identified four non-monetary forces, which I won't go into now. So I, I think one should not use the same word to describe, a, you know, essentially di- different things that have some superficial similarities. 
So for instance, if somebody's defending himself and kills a would-be murderer versus if someone commits murder, you wouldn't use the same word murderer to describe both people. The person who's defending his life um, is not a murderer. And so we have two different, at least two different causes for rising prices. We shouldn't call them both by the same word because it, it, it misleads. Um, and then, of course, everybody expects the central bank to go to the same remedy, which is rising interest rates, uh, which is a whole different story that wouldn't cause falling prices that would actually cause rising prices. Assuming they could do it, which they can't right now. Um, so I define inflation as the counterfeiting of credit. It's monetary when you commit monetary fraud, that's inflation. Um, so it's it's not an increase in quantity as such. It's a degradation of quality, or the asset that's backing the currency is increasingly, you know, puffery or air or something non-existent. Um, so imagine if you're building a building and you're using cinder blocks, and then you start to replace the cinder blocks with a few of them, only a few here and there. Only 1% a year of the cinder blocks are replaced with styrofoam blocks. And then a 2% a year and 5% a year and, and so on, you get to a certain point where the building gets tall enough and there's enough styrofoam, which has no structural strength, of course, um, that the whole thing will collapse. It's not whether the prices are rising, it's the, it's the threat of collapse that's the real issue. So I would say there are four um, uh, criteria for legitimate honest credit. Two of them are with the lender and two of them are with the borrower. So I said earlier, if you have a dollar bill, you're a lender. Um, not only don't most people know that, most people are actively resistant to that idea. And if you tell them that, they, they, they tell you you're wrong. They, they tell you that you're an idiot. They tell you to go study economics. They don't know, they don't they know, they don't wanna know that they're a lender. Um, number two, the lender, so one, the lender has to know that he's lending. Number two, the lender has to be willing to lend. And I, I know a lot of people who think that, oh, well, you know, the US government is such a terrible borrower and it's borrowing so much that they don't want to be a lender to that. So they want to sell their bonds and then they hold cash. So right. you know, it, it, there's, 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 a, um, there's an irony there, I guess. But um, anyway, so then two, two, the other two criteria on the borrower side, the borrower has to have the means to repay. Now, a lot of people think in consumer terms, which is really not how to understand a monetary system. They think, okay, I make a salary of X dollars. Um, I can go take out some credit card debt and, and go on and my favorite example is to go on a vendor, you know, in Las Vegas and, you know, drink in dissipated way, but, you know, you rack up $10,000 worth of debt. You know, you have a salary, you could amortize it. Okay, in that sense, you know, the person has, has the means to repay. But in, in a corporate sense and in the, you know, in the institutional sense, whether it's government, banking, corporation, whatever, the borrowing only really works if it is financing uh, an increase in production. You know, you're buying a factory, you're buying something that produces revenue, you're opening a gold mine, you're doing something that increases production. By selling the products that are produced, you get revenue. The net of revenue minus expenses is gross profit. It takes gross profit to service a debt. And um, if you don't have that element, if you borrow money, let's say to um, dole out welfare payments, stimmy checks as as i guess they're being called now um as a counterfeiting i mean you don't have the means to repay it you you called the borrowing but you just gave it all out you don't you didn't create any asset that's going to generate the cash flow and you're just saying well next year we promise to have more discipline than we had this year and if anybody believes that i have an nft of a bridge to sell them in brooklyn um so um uh, that's the first one and second one is intent so, so the borrower has to have means and intent to repay Clearly, that's lacking with uh, you know government borrowing today. So we have the counterfeiting of credit. Now, by defining it this way, the fact that they're counterfeiting credit does not necessarily tell us that that's going to cause consumer prices to rise or you know to fall. Um, you know, to understand that from a, from a monetary perspective, we have to look at which direction is the interest rate headed. And I think a way of understanding the falling interest rate. I've used the term, we're feeding the savers to the consumers via the producers. But another way of looking at it is a falling interest rate is an increasing subsidy to producers. 
So if we're increasing the subsidy to hamburger production, would we expect the hamburger price to rise or to fall? Fall, right? Because we, we subsidize it, we get more of it. And unless you get, Americans, more, you get more hamburger producers, if you. Right. So the falling interest rate is an increasing subsidy to produce production of everything. So we get softer falling prices mitigated by ever increasing mandatory useless ingredients. And so I think I wrote an article, it was a little bit different focus, but I wrote an article for the Sound Money Project called Inflation Isn't What You, or Sound Money Isn't What You Think It Is. And I posited the question, and I'll frame it in a different way here versus the way I did in the article. Suppose the falling interest rate, we're pushing prices down at about 2% per year. And suppose that the regulators got together and conspired to add just enough burden of additional regulation to push prices up at 2% per year. Would anybody call that, oh, that's uh, that's sound money, that's a disinflationary environment, everything is fine? No, of course not. Uh, so I had a picture of the um, Norman, I reposted the Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, he used to paint for the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, and the, the painting is entitled The Double Ride. And so it's a woman buying a chicken at a butcher shop. So they have the old style scale hanging on the chain from the, from the ceiling, and here's the scale. and the butcher can't see it, but she has a finger underneath pushing up to lighten the scale. And 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 the, the meat is blocking his view of that. She can't see it because there's a piece of butcher paper that's curled over, but behind that, he's pushing down on it. And I asked the rhetorical question, suppose the up force from her finger happened to match the down force from his finger. Would, would anybody uh, call that um, an honest or sound uh, measurement of the weight? Of course not. You know, two frauds that by pure luck cancel each other out at this moment in time don't really represent any kind of honesty. Um, at best, okay, we got lucky and, you know, the scale had the right value at the moment, but. Keith, okay, here's here's a good one. This this 2% inflation number, it gets thrown around all the time. 2% inflation in perpetuity is needed for growth. I know that you know, these central bankers, they're just so intelligent and they mathematically came to this 2% number. But Keith, you gotta tell me, how did they come to 2% inflation and why not 2% deflation? How did they come up with this number? <laughs> so um, there we get to uh, something. I don't know if I've written about this. I know I've used the term court economist, but if I've really written an article about this, that essentially there are three kinds of, three kinds of people running around um, uh, calling themselves economists. The first type is really the dirigiste, the central planner, who either just lusts for power or somehow has the hubris to think that um, you know, he can direct everybody's little lives for them and to, to everyone's benefit. Um, the second type, which is probably where a lot of these things come from, are the court economists. And the court economists, you know, in, in employ of the king, and they're not really there to study economics or really to understand anything. They're there to sell the propaganda. It convinces all that it's good. And so they want to convince everybody it's growth, it's good, it's this, it's that, the other thing. Um, you know, government wants to borrow so that it can spend. And it can spend more than it could by, by getting the tax revenues. Right? Taxes are unpopular. So if you have to raise taxes, you're going to lose, maybe perhaps lose as many votes as you get by whatever you give away for free. But if you can borrow, then you know, you've got a winner. So conventional theory holds that this is inflation, which causes rising prices. So then they have to sell people on, you know, why rising prices are good. And so the court economists go out there and do a full, do a full court press, uh, you know, to go out there and sell it. Um, you get a secondary benefit, and that is, if the money were truly being devalued, and if the measure of the money is one over consumer price level. Um, then you're easing the burden of the borrowers. Um, I think th I think there's several fallacies there, but maybe I should hold that for now in the interest of concision. Um, but it's nonsense. I mean, this idea that uh, you know by stealing everybody's savings, by de you know by by consuming or destroying all the capital that people hold, that you're going to get any kind of growth out of this uh, is 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 the technical term for that would be rubbish. Okay, Keith, we got so many more inflation questions, but I'm just going to do one more. So if a glut of fiat money doesn't necessarily cause inflation, which I think they mean a rise in consumer prices, 
and governments can print money to their heart's content. What is the ideal ratio of goods and services to money? And this is from Richard Oxay from the newsletter. So you can't, one of the problems, um, so there's a great quote from early 20th century physicist Wolfgang Pauli. And somebody presented a paper to him and he looked at it and then he crumpled it up and threw it into the garbage can um, and said, this isn't even wrong. Um, so comparing uh, uh, goods supply to money supply is falls into that category. Um, so there's something that every everyone who majors in science or engineering would get, um, if not in high school, certainly freshman year of college, uh, and that is it's called dimensional analysis. Uh, uh, it's you know looking at the units of the things on both sides of the equation or the inequality, uh, you know, if you want to say x is greater than y. And making sure that they're the same. So, for instance, we have to compare distance to distance, speed to speed, acceleration to acceleration, jerk to jerk. You know, those who have studied physics will know that I've just gone first derivative, second derivative, third derivative. Um, but but leaving that aside, you can't compare distance to velocity. You can't compare velocity to acceleration. You cannot compare acceleration to jerk. They're inapplicable. We can't speak of the rate at which your airplane is traveling and compare that to the distance that my house is from the Phoenix capital. They're just inapplicable or in, 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 incomparable. Um, and so uh, the reason why I say this is that, of course, money is a stocks and goods are a flows. So it's literally comparing distance to velocity. Um, you know, when the gold standard money is measured in ounces or tons, today it's measured in dollars. But goods are flows. It's tons per year. Um, and so we can't literally can't compare them. Another way of thinking of it is the money is not consumed in the transaction, but the goods are. Right. So if you sell a bunch of pork bellies, mm. well, somebody cooks those pork bellies up, uh, you know, with barbecue sauce and eats them. Um, and then they're gone. But the money that was used to pay for the pork bellies that the seller of the pork bellies now has the money and then he uses that same same dollar. So the question people should be asking is the, oh, the observation, there's an observation and then a question. The observation is that clearly the money just doesn't keep going around faster. The same amount of money doesn't keep going around faster and faster and faster, bidding the prices up to infinity. There's some break. There's some process that stops it. What is that process? And um, I don't think the mainstream has an answer because all they say is the only thing that causes prices to go up is an increase in the quantity of money. And if the quantity of money didn't increase, then they just presume that the money wouldn't keep going around doing that. So I, I like to use the, an analogy of a bone in the human body. So you take your arm bone from elbow to, to wrist and everyone assumes that that is a static fixed thing. You know, the length isn't changing. Um, the, the diameter isn't changing. Um, the mass presumably isn't changing until you get, you know, much older and then you start to get loss of bone density, which can be a problem. It's called osteoporosis. Um, so it isn't it isn't really static. Uh, that's just a, a lay a layman's assumption. If you look at what's going on in the bone, every minute of every day, the body is it's called resorption. It's actually pulling calcium out of the bone and pulling and bringing it into the bloodstream where it's disposed of. But at the same time, there are bone cells that are adding new bone matter. And so the there's an equilibrium because the two rates of adding new bone and subtracting bone are are balanced. Um, you know, you have to look at the at the forces that are um, you know pushing money to just go crazier and crazier versus forces that are pulling it down and say, you know, or the, or the rate of it uh, down to say what is what is causing some sort of equilibrium. Um, and that would take, take you down a very different path from uh, conventional economics. So in terms of ideal ratio, well, I don't think you can make that ratio. But even if you could, the second problem is the central planners, you know, uh, dilemma. What is that magic number? Um, how would the central planners even know what it was? And by the way, since everything in the economy is dynamic and not static, um, even if there was a magic number, and even if you knew it at this moment, 
One second from now, it would be a different number. Com or and your first number is completely obsolete. <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's meaningless. Yeah, it's changing. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for checking out this Ask Eat Anything episode of the Gold Exchange podcast. Make sure to subscribe and follow all our social media for part two. See you next time.